Amen. Thank you, Tommy, for leading us in prayer. We'll be in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We'll look at verses 10 through 16 together today. Titus chapter 1, 10 through 16. Let me read uh, the text to you, kind of give you our our aim for today's sermon, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump right in. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I want to give you the aim, and then I'll pray again for the preaching of God's word this morning. Here's our aim. We, we want to see in the text that for the good and faith of the church, we must reprove the rebels. For the good and the faith of the church, we must reprove the rebels. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us this morning, that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always my joy to have opportunity to preach. And one of the things that it affords me the opportunity to do is to be able to stand here, see all of your faces, and to say again what God is my witness, uh, I know is true. I love you all. I love the members of this church. It's been a while since the preparation of a sermon Today's text has caused me so much heartache. I'm heartbroken because I think of names and faces that used to sit in the seats that you're sitting in who are no longer at Grace Church for a multitude of reasons. Some have left Grace Church for good reasons. Rhythms, life rhythms, location, perhaps to be closer to aging parents. 
Some have even been sent for the furtherance of the gospel. Tommy prayed for two very good brothers that I love so much that I miss, Corey Henry and Hunter Coy. I miss them. Grace Church had the privilege of sending them out. We just sent Matt Nash out just a few weeks ago and our brother Derek, who did such a wonderful job leading in our discipleship hour this morning, intends to join them soon. But some are gone because they have fallen into unrepentant sin and were excommunicated. Some have chosen to leave because they didn't want to be held accountable. Some have departed because they were deceived by bad theology. Still others, because they believed themselves to be wiser than the elders that God has called to shepherd this flock. For these I weep. But my tears don't add weight to the words of today's text. God's word stands on its own. My tears, and I'm sure your tears as well, as you consider some of the people who are no longer with us, are birthed out of the realization that today's text is a sad reality that we've experienced multiple times in our short existence. Last week, we were able to look at the qualifications of an elder found right here at the beginning of Titus chapter one. I wanna repeat a few of those verses just to set our minds uh, in the right place as we continue in the text. So going back to verse seven, it says, for the overseer, the pastor, the elder, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, nor fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Listen to verse nine. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The final verse of qualifications really sets the table for what Paul intends to communicate to Titus. <clears throat> A true pastor ought to be able to do one thing in particular, hold fast the faithful word. In other words, a pastor ought to be able to hold firmly to the word of God, withstanding the onslaught of false teaching, thwarting the many attempts from the world on the outside and the wolves on the inside by standing on God's word and its faithful historical teaching when opposition arises. There have been and there will be in the future those who have attempted to challenge both the elders and the church's statement of faith. Some over the years have attempted to make issues of nuances that are not central to the gospel. Some have emphasized their pet doctrines and sought to persuade others. Some have latched on to popular internet voices outside the church who are neither elder qualified nor embraced by conservative and faithful denominations. Your elders have had many moments within elder meetings or in private meetings with such individuals to implore them not to go astray. And unfortunately, more often than we would like, these men have gone astray. We've had the difficulty but necessary task of both exhorting these people in sound doctrine 
and even refuted the things that they believe, letting them know that they were false. The church should not be surprised by this reality. The truth is every faithful church in history has had to wrestle through these type of things. Paul spent a large portion of his two letters to Timothy that we just studied together as a church warning against bad theology and those who propagate those doctrines. Grace Church has not been exempt from such trouble. And we have learned over the years that we must lean into God's word and continue to profess, proclaim, preach sound doctrine in our approach to such rebels. This letter to Titus adopts the same posture as the two that Paul has written to Timothy. In verse 10, where our text begins today, Paul says, there are many rebellious men. With that reality, let's look at the text together. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. The first thing that I want us to see this morning as we kind of push through the text are the attributes of these rebels. How does the text describe these kind of people? And as we look at these attributes of these rebels, the first thing that I want you to see is they oppose God's leadership. They oppose God's leadership. I want to begin speaking very clearly about this this attribute, this attribute of the rebel, that they oppose God's leadership. Now, I know we're coming out of the gate pretty quick and heavy this morning, but I believe that the text warrants such strong words. When God appoints leaders within a church in his plainly laid out biblical order, that leadership should not be opposed without justification. All right, I wanna walk very carefully in the things that I say here. I certainly don't want to appear to be self-serving as an elder of a church in this matter. But today's text tells us that these men of opposition will be many. So I'll say again to my fellow elders to this church, do not be surprised by the number of opponents that arise against you. God's people and this church over the years will certainly see opposition. And contending with these opponents is one of our primary roles as elders. This is not new to Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, when he's, he, he's writing to the church in Corinth, he says, but I will remain in Ephesus, Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Everywhere Paul go, goes in the New Testament, he finds time and time again that he's uh, facing opponents, opponents to the truth of the gospel. And though these rebels may come in the name of truth or enlightenment or they have some kind of spiritual courage, the reality is they were neither called by God nor equipped to lead God's church. They either believe that the elders lack wisdom or they believe they possess a greater understanding of the scriptures themselves. But at the heart of these rebels, listen, is a hatred of God. They would not say this themselves, but their actions expose them. Ultimately, they believe that God has made a mistake by allowing such men as the elders of this church to lead, 
To oppose God's leadership is to oppose God. All you have to do is read through the Old Testament narratives and you begin to see examples of this time and time again. What about Noah, who had God's calling on his life and those who opposed him drowned in the flood? Moses was opposed and those who opposed him were destroyed in the Red Sea. Elijah and those who opposed him were consumed by fire. We can look at the story of David and see that those who opposed him, Goliath, Saul, Absalom, all met their demise. See, the posture of these rebels, the posture of opposition is exposed as rebellion by the defense that God gives to his chosen leaders. Rejection of God-ordained, God, excuse me, God-ordained church-identified leadership is rejection of God himself. Now, again, I want to be careful. I don't want to sound self-serving. So let me say some other things to accompany what I'm saying. If rebels' rejection of church leadership is rejection of God, how then can an ungodly leader who has fallen into habitual and unrepentant sin be addressed? You just heard Tommy pray for another church where a man has fallen into sin. He's been arrested. The church is hurting this morning. Clearly, it can happen. So let's be clear. The elders of any church including this one, we don't have a free pass. First Timothy chapter five, if we just go back into these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, it says this, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. God's word is clear. Listen carefully. The elders of this church are not above accusation. We're not above accusation. We're capable of falling into sin. We are capable just as any other believer of doing things that would disqualify us from our role as an elder. And when there's evidence of sin, At least two witnesses, preferably three according to the text, should confront the elder on such sin. God's word lays it out for us. This is true of any believer and any sin when you get right down to it. If a brother's in sin, they must be confronted. And if one person's confrontation is not enough, then more go. These these accusations, if there are any accusations to be made against another, should be brought to the other elders for consideration. Last week, we looked at the qualifications of an elder. If a man does not qualify, then he should not be recommended, much less serve as an elder. But if a man qualifies and God is both equipped and called and the church has appointed this man to be an elder, opposing such a man should be viewed as dangerous. This also doesn't mean that you can never disagree with these men. It may help you to know that the elders do not all agree on every single thing ourselves, at least not initially. Sometimes it takes a little bit of conversation, a little bit of prayer, a little bit of seeking God's word together before there can be unity in our thought. We praise the Lord for this. 
More than once in 17 years in the life of this church, the elders have been helped to reshape their thinking on a matter because of a humble brother or sister who has brought something to our attention. I thank the Lord that I've had conversations that weren't at the table with other elders, with men and women in this church who have helped shape my thinking, helped me to think more clearly about a certain text or a certain matter in the life of the church. We also praise the Lord for this. Your elders gladly say to you that we need your help as saints. We covet your prayers that God would give us wisdom. But unfortunately, there have been too many instances over the years where a not so humble person has opposed the elders and could not see the wisdom in a matter and created both issue in the church and placed themselves in a dangerously difficult position. My primary point in saying all this right at the beginning of the sermon is this. If you're not in agreement with the elder's position or action on a matter, you should bring it to their attention for dialogue. Ultimately, I believe God will give wisdom to the elders and yourself and move the church in the right direction. I'm confident in this fact. However, if in that dialogue, the wisdom expressed is not what you want to hear. Be careful how you respond. Be careful how you respond. To think that God has given you a word or an understanding separate or different from that of the elders that he has appointed, I believe is rebellion. Two specific ways that we've watched this happen over the years is this. A rebellious person wants to emphasize a pet doctrine that is not essential to the gospel or even worse, a distraction to the gospel. A rebellious person wants to force some sort of action from the church and believes if the church doesn't take such action, they are in sin. These are two particular ways, pet doctrine and forced action. Opposing God's appointed leadership is rebellion. The second attribute of a rebel is this, they produce worldly chatter. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, is what the text says. Do not listen to these empty talkers, especially above and beyond your elders. Do not lend an ear to their schemes. You validate their lies and their motives when you give attention to their talk without bringing the matter to the elders yourself. These individuals do a lot of talking to others in the church, but rarely do they actually bring a matter to the elders themselves. Listen to how Paul explained the same problem to Timothy. Again, these are verses that we just looked at recently. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 on this empty talking matter. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and, a, and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And then again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it would lead to further ungodliness. According to scripture, three things happen when these individuals talk, these, this empty chatter, when these people who are speaking these empty words, they speak of worldly matters rather than biblical ones. They tend to have a theory and then they try to use the Bible to accommodate those views rather than deriving their theology from scripture and forming their views from that. 
We should apply scripture to issues of the world. I'm not saying that we don't do that, but we should not use God's word to support our selfishly motivated worldly positions. It, it simply can't be done. The second thing that these empty chatter people do is they propagate false knowledge. Their words may sound wise until investigated more closely under the light of scripture. This exposing of lies and defending the purity of the gospel is the very thing that God has called elders to do. All we have to do is look back just a few verses again into Titus chapter one. And the third thing that happens in this empty chatter, not only are these worldly matters discussed and false knowledge presented, but it leads to ungodliness according to Second Timothy chapter two. They actually betray themselves with their words. They lead themselves down paths of ungodliness. These individuals are usually blinded by their commitment to an idea rather than their understanding of the whole counsel of God's word. And therefore they misapply their understanding and become unable to hear wisdom from God's word or by his appointed elders. Because of their blindness, their talk is empty, according to the text. To listen to and to heed their empty talk is to bind to something that doesn't produce anything good for God's people. Sometimes these empty talkers come in the form of so-called Christian internet personalities. They're saying lots of good stuff, but as you begin to look at them more closely, they are also saying things that lead people down detrimental paths. Ultimately, their theology and their character will be exposed as fraudulent. And unfortunately, their listeners all too often go down with them. Rebels produce empty chatter. The third thing that I want you to see about the attributes of, of the rebels is this, they espouse deceptive theology. It says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. You see that third description. Many are knowingly sowing deception, but others I believe are so deceived that they are deceiving themselves. They're, they're deceived themselves, so they, they don't know that they've been deceived. They don't know that they're deceiving others. They're just deceived. It's a sad thing for someone to be deceived by the father of lies and then become a workman for the enemy. Do not set yourself in opposition to God by being in opposition to his word, his church, and her leaders. Again, these deceivers are leading themselves and others down a dangerous theological path. They may not realize it at the time, but if they carry their theology to its end, it will be absent of gospel grace altogether. And that's what we find in Paul's writing to Titus here. This was the case for the Judaizers that Paul is warning Titus in the following phrase, especially those of the circumcision, he says. These Judaizers would say, yes, believe the gospel, but you must not only believe you must also be circumcised. Faith in the gospel plus some other necessary action is no gospel at all. The grace of God is nullified the moment we add an action to faith in Jesus Christ. True faith in Jesus, his death, his resurrection is saving faith. I do believe that when one is truly converted that God's sanctifying grace will begin to take root. 
And there will be godly actions that will accompany our faith, fruit in keeping with repentance. But those who come in among us with empty chatter and deceiving doctrines will begin to espouse something other than the gospel. If you keep listening, you keep going down that path, ultimately, it's going to be absent of the grace of God. It's gonna be absent of the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. As a matter of fact, if you listen long enough and you listen over time, they stop even naming the name of Jesus. They start talking about all these other things and Jesus fades from the conversation. If what an individual emphasizes to you does not sound like the gospel being preached by your pastors on Sunday, you should pause, investigate, and be of concern. Those who listen to such men do so at their own peril. Listen, wolves have roamed the halls of this church before. And according to God's word, they will roam the halls of this church again. We must be wise, be vigilant, be humble. And I trust God will use the elders of this church to protect the flock from both bad theology and those who propagate it. God help us. Two of the dangers facing churches today, I believe, are critical race theory and Christian nationalism. At first glance, they may seem to contain some biblical elements. CRT rightly acknowledges the Bible's concern for the oppressed and God's disdain toward the oppressor but it wrongly eliminates the gospel as being sufficient to remove the sin and guilt of the oppressor toward the oppressed. It seeks to mete out the penalty and punishment that God removes from such sin through his son's cross death. Additionally, CRT does not consider the heart of an individual, but places the blame of sins from the past on an entire ethnicity. Christian nationalism rightly points to the desire to see Christian influence in the government of a nation. But it does also seek to subvert the call of the church with the call of a national government. Christian nationalism also attempts to trace this national theme through scripture, but in doing so, it has to bypass the gospel age altogether. Going from Old Testament Israel to some New Testament nation, God's word clearly gives authority to his church where Christian nationalism wants national rule. The elders of Grace Church have noticed that those who have embraced these ide ideological paths have struggled with resting in the fact that Christ is enough. They stop talking about Jesus Christ and him crucified and they get fixed on these other things. We also realize that perhaps some of these ideological paths your understanding may be different from our understanding, but regarding the generally accepted understanding of these two dangers, CRT and Christian nationalism, and their leading voices, the elders are telling you they are a both great concern to us. They're concerning to us. And if you're tempted to lean into these paths, all we ask is that you speak with your elders on the subject before you get too far down the path. We want you to know that we're currently planning to address such things in GROW class in the upcoming year. In 2024, we're gonna go through a series called Honest Questions and 
some of the questions being asked are on subjects like that. But listen, these are just a couple of examples that are being perpetuated today, but you could add any theological pathway that does not focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified to the list of dangerous pathways. Those aren't the only two, there's thousands. And you can choose any of them and end up in the wrong place. Any theological view that muddies up the clear gospel is dangerous. Dear saints, we love you. Please be careful with these deceptively packaged lies. God has called us, Acts 27, excuse me, Acts 20, 27 through 32, to shepherd this flock. This is what Paul says in Acts 20. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, excuse me, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And listen to this last verse, Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you, commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See, God allows opposition to the truth for the good and faith of his church. This is one of the ways that I believe the Lord refines his bride. But I want you to see the fourth attribute of these rebels. They create negative influences. Look with me in verse 11. It says this about those people who must be silenced, and here's why, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of the greatest tragedies to this empty chatter, to this deception, to these rebels, is that those perpetuating its poison are all too often perpetuating these kind of things on weaker saints who might be persuaded by such chatter. The text says whole families are upset. Grace Church has experienced this. They leave the church because they've bought into a lie that they've been sold. Without restating all that could be said, these individuals are teaching things that Paul says they should not teach. It is one thing to wrestle with a set of ideas that someone may present to you, but it is an entirely different matter to begin teaching them to others. Be careful. Be careful what you propagate. Be careful what you relay to other people. To wrestle with it yourself is one thing. To pass it along to others is something entirely different. Romans 16, 17, Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Again, the instruction is clear. If the elders aren't teaching it, then you shouldn't be buying it. 
God help us at Grace Church not to be deceived. Save those who've already chosen to walk down these dangerous paths. God help. According to Titus 1, rebels oppose God's leadership. They produce worldly chatter. They uh, espouse deceptive theology and they create negative influence on other people. But they have one aim in mind. These rebels, the only reason they're trying to gain followers, the only reason they try to pull other people with them is for themselves. Look with me in Titus chapter 1 verse 11 again. It says, they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. Here it is, for the sake of sordid gain. They have a motive. It's sordid gain. This was mentioned as an attribute that elders should not possess. It's hard to always put your thumb on the motive of another, of another man's heart. I love to read the Gospels and see Jesus right through a matter, an issue, and drill right into the heart of a man and expose their motives. I love to see that. I don't have that ability. Your elders don't have that ability, nor does any other man in the life of this church. But today's text makes us clear, makes it clear what the motive is for these wolves, these rebels. It's sordid gain, shameful gain, filthy gain, dishonest gain. The reason these people teach these things is for selfish gain. Now I want to be abundantly clear again. For someone to be persuaded by bad teaching is not the same as teaching them for sordid gain. Neither are good. We don't want you to believe lies we don't want you to start following something that's false that's a dangerous place to be we we're we're praying for you we we're, we're trying to exhort you in truth but listen to me to propagate to teach for sordid gain god's word is harsh for those people it's a heartbreaking thing to watch people believe lies but it's infuriating to watch people teach them those who teach these type of things are motivated by selfishness God has neither enlightened them as they pretend nor has he called them to teach as they wish sometimes the sordid gain is because these individuals believe themselves to be better teachers than the ones that God has called to serve as pastors they're not getting the opportunity or recognition they believe that they are due let me just speak For the record, I have no doubt that many could preach far more eloquently than myself and even the other elders who certainly surpass my own ability. But regardless of ability to speak, I do believe the elders of this church have been faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Sunday in and Sunday out. I also hope that we are continuing to grow in this effort and ability But most of all, I hope that our teaching remains to be primarily what I prayed before the beginning of this sermon, that our gospel will not come simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. That's indeed my prayer every time I step into this pulpit. And I pray that that'll always be the case at Grace Church. I love what Paul writes in that text that I pray in Thessalonians. There's an inseparable link between the teaching of a pastor and his desire to see the spiritual benefit of those who hear. Listen to me. These rebels, their aim is sordid gain. 
not the benefit of their listeners. They're not trying to benefit you. They're not trying to help you. They're not trying to lead you down a spiritually healthy path. They just want to gain something for themselves. Even if that's your name on a checklist of people who like what I say and follow me. The aim of a rebel is sordid gain or selfish gain. That's their aim. But God's word gives us a remedy. Look with me, stay in verse 11. He says right at the beginning about these rebels who must be silenced. That's God's remedy. That's God's remedy for the rebel. The remedy for rebels is plain. They must be silenced. That means exactly what we think it means. Their mouths ought to be shut. It is absolutely necessary that these selfish pot stirs be silenced. I must confess that your elders have struggled with this in the past. It's difficult when people who profess Jesus Christ, we believe them to be in Christ, join this church and then somewhere along the way, they take their eyes off Christ and their minds get fixed on some pet doctrine, some thing, some voice, and they begin to go down these detrimental paths. Our first desire as elders is to speak truth to them like the text says, exhort them. Give them sound doctrine. That's step one. And when that's not heeded and they continue down the path, it's difficult to know when to call them out as false teachers. We need your help. We need your prayer. We need God's wisdom. God help us. But false teaching that's allowed to linger, hang around in the life of a church is devastating. Selfish people ruin others. These deceitful teachers are a cancer to the church. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. To the degree that these individuals are upsetting others is the degree to which the church must deal with such people. Listen to that statement again. To the degree that these individuals who are teaching bad doctrine, leading people astray, upsetting others, is the same degree to which the church must deal with such people. Paul continues in Titus, look with me in verse 12. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I found these to be an interesting little injection into the text. And as I began to read commentaries, uh, it, it, it was actually one of the more entertaining uh, parts of my week um, because there are quite literally centuries worth of commentaries 
not just on this text, but on the Cretan people themselves. A third century BC source says this, Cretans are thieves from way back, pirates. They never think along legal lines. Imagine that as a description of an entire island of people. Even more literature, two centuries later, uses this word, Cretan, as synonymous with deceit and lies. Still today, the phrase, play the Cretan, means tell a lie. Be willing to tell a lie. Perhaps my favorite line in the commentary was this, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Now we can look at that the way that I did this week in light of some of these statements and kind of smirk, maybe laugh a little bit. But the reality is what Paul's saying here, quoting their own prophet, is a very damning thing. By the time Paul writes this to Titus, the Cretans' reputation is already several centuries old. But despite the reputation of the Cretan, the Cretans, liars, beasts, gluttons, Paul does not encourage Titus to demonize these people, but rather to firmly instruct them. That's what Paul's doing. Reproof, rebuke, silence is the order of the day that Paul gives. It's the remedy for these rebels. There's not a ministry calling on earth that will not come with opponents and difficulties as Paul is expressing to Titus. You can't flee to a location that provides you with a, 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 a place that doesn't have hardships in the life of the church. It doesn't exist. There's not a church on the planet that's not gonna face these things. And Jesus warned his disciples of this very thing in John chapter 16, he said these, he said this, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you remember you may remember that I told you of them. He was warning the disciples, you're going to have a lot of opposition. It's going to happen. Listen to me, church, elders. We will always face opposition. It will never go away. There's never a time where you're like, we can relax. The opposition's been defeated. They're gone. Ultimately, have they been defeated? Yes, we know that. But we're still in this earthly context. Sin is all around us and within Paul knows that the context that Titus will serve in is one of great difficulty, but the labor is worth it. These lying, beastly gluttons were the people that were now making up the churches of Crete. Not so different from them is the modern American society. When hearts are converted, they are converted from similar dispositions to the Cretans. We're all like the Cretans. It may be this reputable island, but listen to me. We bear the same sin marks. So how does Paul recommend Titus pastor these kind of sheep? Look with me in verse 13. He says this about the, the Cretan prophet's words about the Cretans. He says, this testimony is true. It's true about them. It's centuries old. We all know who the Cretans are. For this reason, he says it again. They must be silenced. He says, reprove them 
severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. Paul says, reprove them severely. Sometimes we believe our leniency is full of grace, but often the most gracious, excuse me, gracious thing that we can do for someone is to deal with them severely. We certainly should be merciful to one another, but we must not allow our sense of mercy to hinder our protection of the families of this church. If someone is wounding the sheep of this church, we must address this person and the issue at hand. According to the text, there is a reason for severe reproof. Don't miss this. This is right at the center of today's text that they must be sound in the faith. There's an aim for elders preaching. There's an aim for severe rebuke. There is an aim in silencing the rebels because we're trying to produce sound faith to the hearers of the preaching of this church. We want there to be sound faith. Put two feet firmly on the foundation, sound faith. The purpose is to spare people from unsound faith, empty chatter, deception. Taking your focus off Christ is shaky. It's wobbly, it's unstable, it's defective. It becomes rotten, it's unreliable, it's dangerous, it's flawed, faulty, flimsy, hollow. As in every disciplined case, in every form of reproof, the aim is redemptive. We hope to win each dissenting voice with the truth, establishing sound faith. So sound faith begins by the elders calling out those deceiving others and exposing their bad theology in the text. That's what happens. The goal is to produce sound faith among the believers. And this is what it says in verse 14. Let's press on in this remedy for the rebels. Silence them, reprove them, And this is what it says to the saints uh, at the church there. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Sound faith not only addresses bad theology and silences the rebels, but it, it also increases, sound faith increases when the saints of the church pay no attention to the ones that are spreading what 1 Timothy 4 calls the doctrine of demons. Listen, Grace Church, do not give attention to those inside or outside the church that are promoting things that your elders are not teaching. Again, if you're unsure, ask the elders. Pay no attention to such men not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments, and listen to this last phrase, of men who turn away from the truth. According to the text, these men have turned away from the truth. The saddest part in all my years of ministry is to watch someone that you love turn away from the truth and embrace a lie. 
It's heartbreaking. It's devastating. It's a wound. To ignore the warnings that you give and to believe what is false and empty and destructive is heartbreaking. Our responsibility as elders and a church is to produce sound faith. Sound faith begins by reproving false teachers. It increases when the saints of the church pay no attention to the ones propagating lies. The remedy for rebels is to reprove them and their bad theology by not listening, silencing them in the life of the church. I said that one of the most heartbreaking things in all of ministry, if not the most heartbreaking thing, is to see somebody who once professed truth believe lies and go astray, turn away from truth. It's heartbreaking because there's a fate that awaits them. Look with me in verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Paul begins to provide a clear picture of the two different types of people that he's writing about in the text. The pure and the defiled. What does Paul mean or intend by contrasting these two types of people? Why is he selected pure and defiled as the words that he would use here. First notice that defiled is not the only contrast used to the word pure. The text reads, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving. Defiled and unbelieving are those who are not resting in the pure gospel for their hope and salvation. Therefore, pure in the text refers to those who believe the simple gospel, that Jesus, the son of God, came to earth and died as a sinless sacrifice for the sins of men, and that he rose again from the grave by his own power to give new life to those who would repent and believe upon his name for the forgiveness of their sins. That's pure, pure gospel, uh, an unhindered look at Christ to the pure, to the ones whom God has truly saved through his son, the good news of the gospel is enough for salvation. It's acceptable to them. To the saved, the gospel alone is perfectly pure. But the defiled and unbelieving, the gospel will never be enough. They will always add something else to their so-called faith. According to Robert Yarbrough, one of the commentaries I read, his rejection, that's the defiled and unbelieving man, his rejection of the gospel would create a domino effect that skews their judgment across the board. To the pure, all things are pure. There's no skewed judgment there. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. It's wrecked. It's warped. It's off. The verse tells us that their minds are not right. Their consciences are seared. No matter how intellectually brilliant they may be, no matter how eloquent a spokesman they may be, their beliefs are absent of the gospel and therefore defiled altogether. Look with me in verse 16. 
just continues to escalate. Think about the fate of the rebels as we read. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That's not an exaggeration. Did you hear that last phrase? They are worthless for any good deed. Perhaps the most devastating news of all, these people who profess faith in Christ are actually denying God with their very actions. Their words have deceived them and now their deeds follow. Their deeds, teaching what they ought not teach, teaching something more than the gospel teaches, teaching something different than what the gospel proclaims exposes their damning unbelief. They have no idea that they are detestable in the sight of God. But that's the word he uses, detestable. You do not want God to see you that way, detestable. They truly believe their efforts are accomplishing something, but they're only breeding destruction. They are only dragging others toward the pit of hell with them. God's word says they are worthless for any good deed. Listen to me. If you just get off one tick from the gospel, if you just start buying into this little side doctrine, apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified, this can be you. The one who must be silenced. The one who needs to receive reproof so that you will again embrace sound doctrine. And if you don't, God's word says you're detestable. God's word says you're worthless for any good deed. Those are strong words. The fate of the rebels is eternal condemnation. Grace Church, these are serious words that Paul writes to Titus. Grace Church, these are serious words that have landed on our ears today. Oh God, help us, save us, protect us. Let me give you four quick pieces of application. These really are fast. For four groups, this is for everyone. Believe only the pure gospel. What does God's word say is true about the gospel? Believe that. Don't be distracted by these other things. Elders, listen to me, brothers, reprove and silence the false teachers. Rebels, it's not unrealistic to think that perhaps a rebel is among us today. Repent and listen to the warnings. If the elders and brothers and sisters of this church warn you against something that you're teaching, repent. Listen to the warning and repent. And then number four, saints, members of Grace Church, pay no attention to these rebels. Don't listen to them. When they start breathing, this empty chatter, call them out, communicate with the elders, 
Pay no attention to these rebels. Let's pray together. Father, I pray one verse that we read earlier in the sermon, Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Pray this for this church. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The gospel, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God, answer this prayer for the faith of Grace Church. We pray, amen.